0: New City Baptist Church is what's called a complementarian church. Complementarianism, as you can see in your handout, in your bulletin, it teaches that although men and women are created equal by God in their being, in their personhood, their essence, we are equal ontologically. Uh, we're both made in the image of God. Yet, men and women are created to complement each other via different roles And responsibilities in marriage, in family life, and in the church. And if you're interested in hearing the full Monty uh, of this doctrine and how it works itself out in real life, uh, there's a sermon series on our church website entitled Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I would refer you to that. Uh, But as every member of this church knows, our church documents are complementarian, our polity is complementarian. And so, as part of that, only biblically qualified men are pastors at this church. Uh, And as a local assembly, we believe that is biblical. We believe that is good. We believe that brings glory to God. And we build our biblical case for uh, rejecting women pastors in the church in part on the Apostle Paul's argument in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 13 and 14, and this is an argument that is rooted in creation. Paul writes this, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. What this means is Paul's prohibition on women pastors isn't a local prohibition. It's not a culturally limited injunction meant only to apply to the women uh, in the church in Ephesus who were teaching heresy 2,000 years ago. How can we be sure of that? Because the apostle doesn't argue from the culture. He doesn't argue from that local church context. He has a theological rationale, and it's one that comes from creation itself. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Really, I mean, Paul would be hard-pressed to have uh, found an argument more removed from the local church context in Ephesus, to to quote that kind of stuff. Uh, Therefore, in the church, women may not teach or have authority over men, which means women may not be pastors Their gender excludes them from the office. Kim Campbell can be Prime Minister of Canada. Hillary Clinton could have been the President of the United States, uh, but neither can pastor a local church. The authoritative office of biblical teacher, at least as far as teaching the men in the church is concerned, is closed to women. In the church... A woman's giftings are to be used in other areas of service to her brothers and sisters. <clears throat> now, this is a second-level issue. No one's salvation is wrapped up with this, but second-level issues are very important. And you may be thinking, sheesh, Pastor John, I mean, I, I, know, I know this teaching is in the Bible and it's in our church constitution, but it's sort of like the red-headed stepchild of our church polity Why stir up this cultural hornet's nest right out of the gate? There's visitors here today and a lot of women visitors like that. (laughs) Uh, Because in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, our text this morning, as we make our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul commands the women to have their heads covered while praying and prophesying. And to prove his point, Paul again argues from creation. Verses eight and nine of our text today, saying that woman was created from man and for man. Going back to the creation account of Genesis, Paul writes, "For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man." So, do do you see the dilemma here? Are there any female pastors at New City Baptist Church? No. But are there any female members at New City who wear a head covering during corporate worship? Well, yes, we have one sister who does. She's not here today, but we have one sister who does, and that's her choice. She's free to do so, but it's not official church polity. And so certain people might object, isn't it inconsistent to reject the Apostle Paul's appeal for women to wear head coverings in the church while affirming his command for women not to teach or have authority over men in the church. Since both in both contexts, Paul virtually uses the same creation-related based reasoning. So do you see the problem? Women must not be pastors. This teaching is grounded in creation. Women must wear a head covering. This teaching is also grounded in creation. Now, maybe you're a convinced complementarian, as I have that defined in your bulletin, but you've never considered that before, and now you're thinking, hey, yeah, <laughs> what about that? Why is Paul's argument transculturally applicable in one case in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but not in the other case in 1 Corinthians 11? Are we being inconsistent? Maybe the ladies of New City ought to start wearing head coverings. Or maybe, you'd argue the other way, maybe ladies ought to be elders. Be it known, I, I won't be arguing the need for women to wear head coverings today. Uh, and you know where we stand as a church on women pastors. Now, I believe the main principle behind 1 Corinthians 11 is something else entirely. But here's an interesting heart question, ladies, If you were convinced from God's word that you were supposed to wear a head covering, would you do it? Wives, what if your husband was convinced this was a a biblical necessity? He was convinced that this was a matter of biblical obedience. Would you submit to his headship in this matter, even if you disagreed? Or husbands, if you were convinced this was a biblical necessity, a matter of Christian obedience, but your wife did not, how would you show love and leadership in that situation? What would you do? Those questions might make for an interesting conversation on the ride home today. Just to throw that out there, hypothetically, Um, and if you're if you're dating someone, you should be asking questions like that. Talk about things like gender, gender roles. Uh, Christian, go into your dating life with some theological convictions. Don't let the other person's charming attributes undo your theological spine. And so we come to the very, very difficult text of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Why is it important we understand this text? Why is it important we get this right? I mean, why not just skip it entirely and move on to the next part, dealing with the Lord's Supper? It's so much easier. Because women and men are different. God made us different. He made us different in creation. And this gender distinction must be maintained both in the church and in the family and in the world. And Paul's argumentation in this passage gets at something basic to our understanding of what God created human beings to be, how we're to live in God's universe, and how we're to bring him glory through our manhood, through our womanhood. New City, our culture is saying One thing on this issue of gender and God's word is saying something very different. And an important part of this, and this is just on the surface of the text, means not dressing or styling our hair or acting in such a way as to appear as the opposite sex. Those gender distinctions aren't a matter of indifference to God. They're of paramount importance. There is to be distinction between the sexes. And this text in 1 Corinthians 11, along with Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, is the most important passage in the Bible related to this very timely issue. And the way I've set this out, for better or for worse, is three-quarters of this sermon is going to be devoted to just wrapping our minds around what 1 Corinthians 11 says and does not say. Because honestly, if you find almost every verse incomprehensible, you're in good company. I mean, as Armando was reading this out loud today in public, he's like, what the heck is going on here? What is this even saying? So understanding what the apostle means comes first. And then at the end of the sermon... I'll make a few points of practical application, but let me warn you, this sermon is front loaded and you're going to need to pay close attention with a, with a Bible open on your lap. I'm going to be jumping from verse to verse to verse, um, following along very closely and praying to God for grace, the whole sermon through grace for me, the preacher and grace for you, the listener. This is a complex, difficult passage. And I've tried to lay things out as helpfully as I know how in your bulletin. That's kind of the mother of all sermon outlines there. Now, one of the many, many perplexing questions of this text is, what's Paul talking about when he says a woman must pray and prophesy, that is, participate in the corporate worship of the church with her head covered? Covered how? What's he talking about? Much ink has been spilled to the two most probable suggestions— are that Paul speaking of some sort of shawl on top of the woman's head or Paul objects to long, loose hair falling down a woman's back and he wants the ladies in the church to follow the usual custom of piling their hair up on top of their heads. And you could make a strong argument for either option. Uh, personally, I'm persuaded it's a head covering of some kind. I could be wrong, but that's what I think it is. But the thing is, The thing is, actually arriving at 100% certainty one way or the other, it isn't possible at this point in time. And, I would argue, it's not necessary. Uh, Because whether it's a hat or a distinctive hairstyle, the precise kind of head covering that Paul has in mind, that's really incidental to his main point. What's important is why does Paul want the women to adorn themselves in a certain way? Why would he want? It? Why would he even care about that? So look at your big picture in your bulletin. Creation affirms. Creation affirms gender roles, and gender distinctions between men and women. If you look at the very bottom of your bulletin, New Testament scholar Benjamin Merkel writes this: Paul's argument from creation in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9, is not directly given to mandate women must wear head coverings. What do those two verses say? Look in your Bibles, verses 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man, verse 9. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. See, that's Paul's creation argument. He's going back to the Garden of Eden, isn't he? Paul's argument from creation is not directly given to mandate women must wear head coverings. Rather, his argument from creation explains how man is the image and glory of God and how the woman is the glory of man. And that insight needs to set our understanding of this passage on a certain footing. Christian women are not required to wear head coverings today when praying and prophesying in corporate worship since the symbol of a woman's head being covered is different today than it was during the time of Paul, at least in many cultures, in our culture certainly. Consequently, Paul's argument from creation is only indirectly linked to the need for head coverings. And the women of New City all say, oh, thank goodness. You know. However, the transcultural truth that undergirds Paul's admonition still applies today. Women are different from men, and this distinction must be maintained in the church and in the family. So point number one in your bulletin, Christian, Honour your head for the sake of biblical teaching, verses 2 through 6. Women can pray and prophesy and participate during the corporate worship of the church, but they must do so with a humble demeanor and with an attitude that supports and is submissive to male headship leadership. During the time of Paul, wearing a head covering communicated a submissive demeanor and feminine adornment. And Paul starts things off with a complimentary introduction in verse 2 before severely, severely criticizing the Corinthians on a number of practices and beliefs in the church related to head coverings, abuses of the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts being used inappropriately during corporate worship, and the denial of the general resurrection on the last day. So from here to the end of the book, he is just confronting them on topic after topic, all of them controversial, many of them not politically correct, but that's what we have to go through. So if things go according to plan, covering these matters will take us to the last Sunday in March. I'm going to preach pretty big chunks. Uh, That's the projected preaching forecast. So Paul says this, verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything, and for holding to the tradition just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize, because you have not understood this or applied this well, he's saying, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And of course, this is something we all need to understand and to apply to our own lives, beloved, Let's, let's not look down our, our spiritual noses at the Corinthians for being ignorant. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder how many Christians today, even at this church, have incorporated this teaching into their worldview. To Paul's mind, everyone except God has a head. And it's important we understand who our respective head is, each of us. And the most crucial question in this entire passage is what Paul means by the word head in verse 3. Listen to how the Apostle Paul repeatedly uses the word in his own writings. You're going to see it's related to authority. For example, Ephesians chapter 5, a passage on the same basic theme of men and women. Paul says in verse 23 of that chapter, the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. That's, that verse speaks to authority. And in verse 22 and 24, Paul calls on wives to submit to their husbands, and submission speaks of an ordered array of authority, doesn't it? It describes the obedience of someone to another who is above the first in some sense. Paul tells wives to submit to their own husbands. Why? Why? How can he say such a thing? Does he, does he hate women? Is Paul a misogynist? Is he just supporting the patriarchy? What's going on? No. Paul knows that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. That's undergirding everything here. Paul knows that human marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. The husband represents Jesus, and so he loves his wife sacrificially and for her good but he is her head the husband is the head of the wife as christ is the head of the church the wife represents the church and so she submits to her husband in all things as the church submits to christ see there's an arrayed authority structure and paul uses the word head with the meaning authority in ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 as well The entire context focuses on the enthronement of Jesus Christ. It focuses on his uh, exaltation. Uh, 122 of Ephesians. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And in Colossians 2.10, Christ is said to be the head over every power and authority. So take all of that and and come back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. What's Paul saying? He says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. He's saying that Christ is the authority over every man. Man is the authority over woman and the context restricts This second example of headship to the church and to marriage is not a blanket statement. And God is the authority over Christ. But do you see, God the Father has authority over God the Son. God the Son willingly submits to the authority of God the Father. Yet God the Father... And God the Son are equal. Which goes to show functional subordination does not imply ontological subordination. A person's role does not determine their worth. New City Sisters, you not teaching men in the church you not having authority over men in the church as elders or over your husband, you submitting to your husband in all things as the church submits to Jesus Christ, that does not make you less important or inferior in any way. Now, the culture in which we live would tell you otherwise. The culture tells you that your role does determine your worth. Big time. That's what it's all about. But the Bible teaches, and we see this in the Trinity itself, that a person can can possess a different function, yet still be equal to the one in authority over them. And verses 4 to 6 flow from this theological principle we see in verse 3. Since Christ is the authority over every man, and since man is the authority over woman, and again, the context restricts that second example of headship uh, to elders in the church and husbands in marriage, it's not a blanket statement of every man has authority over every woman, then it follows that no man should wear a head covering when he prays and prophesies while a woman should. That's the flow of Paul's argument. Okay, great. What, what in the world does that mean? Why is that important? What's going on? Well, for most of the New Testament, knowing a passage's historical context can certainly enhance our understanding, but it's usually not necessary to understand the passage accurately. This passage on head coverings, however, is one of the few places in which there is simply no way we can understand this text without understanding first the cultural historical context. What did coverings one head communicate in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day? If we can't answer that question, then we can't accurately understand this passage. But a word of warning: we're about to get into two thousand-year-old cultural expressions of masculinity and femininity here. All right, don't become distracted. As I read through each verse, please, please resist the temptation to ask yourself the appropriate hair length for men and women today, and what about this case, what about that case, or can guys pierce their ears, or can women wear pants, or w- whatever it's going to be, right? Uh, we're going to get to all of that. Don't worry. Your, your thirst for controversy will be slaked. Uh, instead, I want you to marinate Everything I'm saying in this truth, this basic biblical principle, look at your big picture in your bulletin, creation affirms gender roles and gender distinctions between men and women. That's the big picture to always keep in mind. Women are different from men, and this distinction must be maintained in the church and in the family. That's the transcultural truth that undergirds everything Paul is saying in this passage. So take a deep breath. Let's plunge into the deep end. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Why? Why is that the case? Why is a man wearing a head covering in this culture disgraceful? Because that's an article of clothing women wore, as we'll see in verses 5 and 6. In this culture, a head covering is distinctively feminine attire. And God is very concerned to keep gender distinctions distinct. Things are going on in this text at that basic, basic level. In this culture, a man who wore such a head covering would be shamefully depicting himself as a woman. And it's a two-way street. If a woman doesn't wear a head covering... Her failure to be adorned properly is shameful because she's dressing like a man. Verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, and it is, that's the implied argument here, then she should cover her head. So every woman in the culture of that day would have been ashamed of appearing in public with her head shaved or her hair cut short. Why? Because then she would have looked like a man. And God is very concerned to keep gender distinctions distinct, as it was in creation. And please note, a woman's failure to wear a head covering in this culture is analogous to Paul's thinking to her having her hair cut short or shaved. Right? It's that. It's that sad. It's bad. It's that serious. So Paul explicitly says in verse eleven or chapter eleven fifteen that a woman's long hair is her glory; it honors her. And if a if a man if he has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. Verse fourteen: Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair? It is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. So, this is why you need to keep your Bibles open on your laps and comparing this. If you compare verses 14 with verse 15, it's clear that for a man to wear long hair dishonors him, because long hair is the particular glory of a woman. It's a feminine distinctive. If a man wears long hair, Paul says he looks like a woman. So if we go back and examine verses five and six in light of verses 14 and 15, then we can see that for a woman to wear her hair short or to shave her hair is contrary to what brings her glory, namely her long hair. Instead to keep her hair short is to wear it in a way that a man does. All right then, you just, you're just saying this. It's like, "Wow, <laughs> what, what are we to make of all of this? Um, don't, don't miss the forest for the trees. The apostle wants women to wear head coverings while praying and prophesying because to do otherwise would be to confuse the sexes and give the shameful impression that women are behaving like men. Now, this calls for nuance, and nuance is difficult. Black and white is so much easier. Uh, The rules are so much easier to follow, but, but here's the nuance. The cultural expressions of masculinity and femininity, and and how those change over time, even generation to generation, plays a massive factor in this. You just can't cut and paste this and apply it to 2022 living in Toronto. It doesn't work that way. So at this point in the sermon, I want you to just keep the big picture in mind creation affirms gender and it affirms gender distinctions between men and women. Therefore, at a very basic level, men aren't to dress or style their hair like women. Men aren't to appear like women or behave like women. That is shameful. Likewise, Women are not to dress or style their hair like men. They're not to appear like men or behave like men. That is shameful. Why? On whom or what is the man or woman bringing shame if he or she is not adorned properly? Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered Dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. What does Paul mean by the word head in this passage? Back in verse 3, we saw the word clearly refers to authority. And it still means that. I'm going to circle back to that, back to authority. But we can also see that it refers to a person's own physical head. We see that in verses 4 and 5 and 7 and 10. Look at verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head. Verse 10. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. And I would argue that half of what it means to dishonor one's head means to disgrace and to dishonor oneself. That's why in verse 14, Paul says, if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. The thought in verse 14 is remarkably close to the one that a man who wears a head covering dishonors his head in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovers dishonors his head. He dishonors himself. Verse 14. Does not the very nature of things teach that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Right. So it's saying the same thing. In the same way, if a, woman, a woman's wearing long hair is her glory verse 15 then the disgrace and the shame described in verses 5 and 6 must refer to the disgrace that she brings on herself tom schreiner writes this it is legitimate to infer that those who do not adorn their physical heads in a proper way bring shame on their heads i.e their own selves on the other hand dishonoring one's head in verses 4 and 5 also refers to the head described in verse 3 that's the other half of of whom we're dishonoring. Verse 3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That means a man who wears a head covering, a feminine article of clothing, brings dishonor to himself and to his head, Christ. And the woman who fails to wear a head covering brings dishonor on herself and her head, her husband. In Paul's culture, in Paul's culture, very important, a woman's failure to wear a head covering communicated rebellion and independence to everyone present in that corporate worship service, both to the male church leadership and to her husband. Her behavior was a symbol of her rebellion against the created order against the intended relation between man and woman. So take everything together. It's all about proper gender distinctions in corporate worship, right? Look at point number one in your bulletin. Women can pray and prophesy and participate during the corporate worship of the church, but they must do so with a humble demeanor and with an attitude that supports and is submissive to male headship, male leadership, be it her husband or the church elders. During the time of Paul, wearing a head covering, communicated a submissive demeanor and feminine adornment. Now, I could stop right here and give some modern-day application, but we still don't have the full biblical picture. We haven't looked at creation yet. So I'm thinking application at this point might be a bit premature, so just hang in there a few more minutes. I think it might do more harm than good, to get us thinking about all sorts of cultural expressions in 2022 of of gender it just it just won't be helpful as i try to preach the rest of the sermon so keep all that stuff on the back burner simmering all right i'm going to forge ahead and bring the application at the end of this sermon in a few minutes now now paul moves into creation this is what undergirds everything he's saying this is what makes this transcultural it it underpins everything in this passage he writes this in verse 7 a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, Paul is not denying that women are created in God's image, too. He is aware, very aware, of what Genesis 1, to 27 teaches. The most foundational, I think, principle in, in all of Scripture. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Paul's focus here in verse 7 is on this word glory. He uses it in both parts of the sentence. But what does Paul mean when he says that man is the glory of God, while woman is the glory of man? Well, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 emphasizes man's function as God's representative in creation. As the image of God, man is the glory of God. He reflects the glory of God in creation. He reflects his glory. But woman is the glory of man. Paul is looking at Genesis 2:20 20 to 23. Just, just turn there for a moment and look at this text. <clears throat> Paul is just assuming this. He's assuming we know this well. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And just to clarify this, that does not mean a suitable helper to do the laundry and the dishes or some such crazy thing. No, it's in the context as a suitable helper to expand the borders of the Garden of Eden and thus God's revelatory presence. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed it up the, that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That means Paul is focusing again on the temporal sequence of creation, the creation of Adam and Eve, just like 1 Timothy chapter 2. He's doing it again. The man was created first and reflects the glory of God. The woman was created second and reflects the glory of man. Now, there's, there's all kinds of complexity with that, but Paul's main, main point is that men and women both are both the glory of another. All right? we, we both reflect our head. Therefore, both sexes have an obligation not to cause shame on our respective heads. How do we bring shame? By violating gender distinctions and gender roles. By covering his head, the man brings shame on Christ, not honour, since he, the man, is the image and glory of God, and, not by, and by not covering her head, the woman brings shame on man, not honor, since she is the glory of man. So my new city brothers, we must reflect the glory of our head, who is Christ, which we do, in part, through distinctive masculine clothing and hairstyles. It's like on the surface of the text. This is what this is saying. It's as basic as that. And this needs to be in our mind, brothers, when we buy clothing for ourselves or we go to the barber. It's ever before our eyes as we raise our children, masculine boys, feminine girls, shepherding them in how they dress, how they act, or when we send them out trick-or-treating in costumes. If little Billy wants to be a fairy princess... You say, no, Dad, and then you lovingly explain why. This is not a silly, ludicrous, insignificant little command, because by doing so, we're affirming those gender roles and gender distinctions established by God in creation and reflecting Christ's glory. In this context, the issue is appearance and dress. Men are different from women. And we want to affirm that truth in the church, in the home, in how we present ourselves to the world. New City Sisters, you must honour your head, be that the elders of your church or your husband, through distinctively feminine clothing choices and hairstyles. And it's more than just wearing a dress or something on the outside. It's your humble, submissive heart, too. You can be railing against God the God-ordained authority on the, on the inside in your heart, and all the while looking beautifully feminine on the outside. It may be helpful to go back and listen to my 1 Peter 3 sermon. Paul addresses that issue explicitly in that text. But in making your clothing and hairstyle choices, ladies, you are affirming gender roles and gender distinctions established by God in creation. You are affirming women are different from men, and you want to affirm that truth in how you appear. You want to affirm that in proper corporate worship. And Paul brings this up again in chapter 14 and the issue of women remaining silent in the churches as, as prophecy is being evaluated. And you want to affirm that in your marriage. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Eve was the bone of Adam's bone and flesh of Adam's flesh because she was fashioned from a portion of his body. That's what that verse means. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Adam was not created for the benefit of Eve, but Eve was created for Adam to be his helper. Read the Genesis account, you know, to expand those borders of Eden, and with it God's special revelatory presence. But once again, we see, just like in First Timothy chapter 2, Paul points to the origin of human beings to defend the principle of male headship. We see again there, there is a complex fabric of Old Testament theology rooted in creation which predetermines the acceptable role of men and women in the local church. It's referenced in 1 Timothy 2 as well as 1 Corinthians 14 and 34 which we'll come to in a few weeks. Because man did not come from woman and because woman was made for man, some kind of pattern has been laid down regarding the roles the two sexes play in the church. Look at Paul's argument from nature, verse 14. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. And when Paul speaks of nature, he's referring to that natural and instinctive sense of right and wrong, that God has planted in us, especially with respect to sexuality, including distinctions between genders. New City, this sense of what's appropriate, of what's fitting, has been implanted in human beings from creation. That's what the Word of God is saying. And the natural instincts and psychological perceptions of masculinity and femininity are then manifested in particular cultural situations so that means a male instinctively naturally shrinks away from doing anything his culture labels as feminine so too females have a natural inclination to dress like women rather than men and how men and women wear their hair is a significant indication of whether they're abiding by the created order of course, what constitutes long hair is often debated. And what's appropriately masculine or feminine in hairstyle may vary widely from culture to culture, generation to generation. That's, that's kind of not the point. Uh, but the function of verses 13 to 15 is to show that the wearing of a head covering by a woman is in accord with the, with the God-given sense that women and men are different. For a woman to dress like a man is inappropriate because it violates the distinction God has ordained between the sexes. That is the culture-transcending principle of this text. And according to Paul, if a woman prophesies in the church, or if she prays in the church without wearing the symbol of her being under male authority, if she prophesies while dressed like a man, if she prays while dressed like a man, she is in effect negating the distinction between men and women that God has ordained from creation. And then Paul unpacks this further in chapter 14, and the issue of women being silent in the churches and not evaluating prophecy during a corporate worship service will come to that beautiful can of worms uh, in a month or so but the apostle is laying the groundwork for that here in this text verse 10 it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels what does paul mean by that i have no idea perhaps it's that angels are good angels and they desire to see the order of creation maintained Maybe it's because even angels cover themselves in God's presence like in Isaiah 6. I'm I'm not sure. That that is a very confusing verse. Uh, The main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. So don't get distracted by that one. Very quickly now a qualification, and then an apostolic command, and this qualification is very important because Paul doesn't want the Corinthians or us to misunderstand his argument, and that's very easy to do in this text. Verses 3 to 10 has been a sustained argument in favor of male headship, female submission, yet with full, full participation in corporate worship for women. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. That means Christian brother, a Christian brother cannot say to a Christian sister, I don't need you. No Christian sister can say to a Christian brother, I don't need you, never, ever. There is a profound interdependence between women and men. Neither sex can boast over the other. Man is the source of woman, yes, but all men uh, ever since Adam have come into the world through woman. Verses 3 to 10 make it very clear, very clear, the Apostle Paul believed in role distinctions. But verses 11 to 12 show that he did not thereby believe women were inferior or less important. And it's a mistake, New City, to exclude either teaching. We must hold that together as the Apostle Paul did. Verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, you've been very, very patient. Uh, This is a difficult, complex text, and I'm sure parts of it were difficult to follow. Let me start landing the plane. Uh, to be absolutely clear am i suggesting that women return to wearing coverings or veils no no (laughs) god wants us to distinguish between the fundamental principle that underlies a text and the application of that principle to our specific culture the fundamental principle is that the sexes though equal are different God has ordained that men have the responsibility to lead in the church, while women have a complementary role. What do you mean by that, John? Well, more specifically, if women pray and prophesy in church, they should do so under the authority of male headship, be that their husband or the authority of male elders. This text applies in either case, and this will be further expanded in chapter 14, so keep it simmering on your back burner. In the first century, failure to wear a covering sent a signal to the congregation that a woman was rejecting the authority of male leadership. Today, in Canada, if a woman doesn't wear a head covering while praying or prophesying, no one thinks that she is in rebellion against her God ordained head. Right? I mean, did anyone think that? as they walked through those doors and saw all these Canadian women not wearing shawls. No, a lack of head covering sends no message whatsoever in our culture today. Nevertheless, the principle still stands. That women should participate in corporate worship in a manner that makes it clear that they submit to male leadership. Sister... The attitude and demeanor with which you participate in our corporate worship will be a major indication of whether you have a humble and submissive heart. How you submit to and help your husband and affirm his leadership in the church and in the home, how you submit to the elders of this church, it all flows from this text. But more on that when we come to 1 Corinthians 14. I want to expand on that further at that point, all right? Another application... Both men and women today should dress so that they do not look like the opposite sex. Confusion of the sexes is contrary to the God-given sense that the sexes are distinct. For example, it would be wrong for a 21st century Canadian male to wear a dress in public. That would violate his masculinity he would bring shame upon himself and dishonor his head, Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, indirectly, but clearly, prohibits cross-dressing in Christians. The point is not that women shouldn't wear jeans or pants. The point is that in every culture, there are certain kinds of adornment which become culturally acceptable norms of dress for men and for women. So keep it within the culturally accepted gender norms. That's, that's what I'm arguing. Uh, for 99% of us, that's usually not a problem. But for some, people tempted to cross-dress, for instance, or, or fashionistas who want to push the envelope and blur gender lines if the new cool thing is to look androgynous, then you're going to need to humble yourself and obey the word of God. There's a a bigger principle at stake here than your right to express yourself. Now, there are all kinds of what about this, what about that situations that we can think of, matters that Christians will disagree over as a matter of conscience. This is a good sermon, I think, to follow up on the heels of last week's text. Very good. But here's my advice. It's, just, it's two points. Christian, believe the basic biblical teaching. Men and women are equal, both created in the image of God. Believe it. Creation affirms gender roles and gender distinctions between men and women. Believe it. Men and women are different. And this distinction must be maintained in the church and in the family and in society. Believe it. And then, with that as your center, work out from there. Work out from there. The natural in- instincts and psychological perceptions of masculinity and femininity are are manifested in particular cultural situations which change slowly over time. So if you are a fashionista, death to self, go low in humility, Christian. Be patient of cultural change. Don't always insist on your rights. I could wear an earring today And most people wouldn't bat an eye, at least not in the sense of, John looks like a girl, he's flirting with gender bending. Sixty years ago, that would not have been the case. Only girls wore earrings. And as a Christian male living in 1962, I wouldn't want to be on the vanguard pushing for that kind of change. Do you see the distinction I'm making there? All right. Even if my heart motivation has nothing to do with wanting to look androgynous or blur the lines a bit between the sexes, I want the world to see me living out biblical truth and prioritizing my head as I reflect his glory. Amen.